0: I come from a long line of stubborn men, and I'd like to illustrate that. My grandfather, Bill, he was a military man, and in the military in the 50s and the 60s, if somebody told you to do something, what'd you do? You did it, right? And then after he got out of the military, he owned his own business. He ran a printing press. And at that time period, if you were a small business owner and you told somebody to do something, what happened? They did it. And then he had seven kids, and when you have seven kids and you tell them to do something, maybe, a little shaky. So one day he told my father, Phil, who was a teenager, he said, Phil, when I come home, I want that grass mowed. And he went to work, and he came home expecting to see that grass shorter than when he left. But when he came home, that grass was just a little bit longer. <laughs> <laughs> So he decided that the problem was my father's motorcycle. He needed to deal with my father's distractions. So he went into the garage, he wheeled out my dad's bike, took it around the back of the house, where there was a ravine and he let that bike go. A Couple hours later, my dad came home, went into the garage looking for his motorcycle, wasn't there, went to the house, Dad, where's my motorcycle? He said, take a look in the back couldn't believe it, ran outside, around the garage, looked him down, was the motorcycle. Now, he didn't go down to the ravine to get his motorcycle. No, he went into that garage. And he got that mower out <laughs> And he took it around the side of the garage to the back and he let that go down <laughs> into the ravine. Remember, I to from a long line of stubborn men. Now that's how the story ends. <laughs> My dad never mowed the grass. That's why you have seven kids. You have somebody else mow the grass. But a long line of stubborn men. I want to talk about stubbornness today because it's a relevant topic. And the way I want to talk about it is is defined like this. Being unreasonably obstinate unreasonably obstinate. There's a way you can define stubbornness in a positive way of being resolute or determined, and that's good. But we're going to look at it in terms of being unreasonably obstinate. And if we're all really perfectly transparent and authentic at this very moment, we can admit one thing. We're sitting next to a stubborn person. We are sitting next to a stubborn person. Now listen, there are ways... That you and I can be unreasonably obstinate. That doesn't matter. Right? Some of you, it's where you're going to go out to eat. After church, this is where we go. Some of you, it's where you sit in your house. For some of you, it's who holds the remote. For some of you, it's what team you root for. There are a myriad of ways that all of us can be stubborn. And it really won't impact the big picture. But what happens? What happens when you and I... Stand before a holy God And we're <coughs> stubborn What happens When the Lord of hosts Is calling on us To do something And we're unreasonably obstinate? Well look at that, I want us to open up To the book of Jonah So if you have a copy of the scriptures Would you open up to me, to Jonah 1 Jonah 1, if you don't have a copy Of the scriptures, we have it on the screen as well Couple things I want to say. You didn't like that one? <laughs> no problem. So, Jonah won a couple things. You are probably familiar with the book of Jonah. Why? Because it's a story about a guy who got what? Swallowed by a whale or a big fish. That's right. So, a lot of the time, because of the fact that we've all heard Jonah, we boil the entire story down to this one incident. But did you know? Chapters of the book of Jonah in the forty-eight or so verses, the fish is only mentioned three times. The story is about much more than just a guy who got swallowed by a big fish. Two, a lot of the time in the modern world, we tend to look at the story of Jonah and go, Oh, it's an allegory, it's a story, it's a parable, it's made up. But Jesus directly references the story of Jonah in Matthew twelve. And he uses it as the basis of the fact that he's going to be buried in the ground and resurrected. So for Jesus, he views Jonah as a historical event. And I don't know about you, but for me, I'm going to take that as my cue that I should view it as a historical event as well. And then finally, Jonah's only mentioned one other time in the Old Testament. It's in 2 Kings 14.25, saying that he is a prophet from an area called Gath-hepher which is in northern Israel so with that let's open into the first chapter the first verse follow along with me now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai, saying arise go to Nineveh that great city and call out against it for the evil has come before me but Jonah rose the fleet of Tarshish for the presence of the Lord he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish so he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away the presence of the lord let's pause there what's going on here first note that the word of the lord comes to jonah notice that it doesn't say how the word of the lord comes to jonah a lot of the time in the scriptures it's very specific if it came through an angel it came through a vision or it came through a dream here the how is not stated and the reason why is that the authors wants to point us towards the who it is the Lord himself speaking directly to Jonah now what does he tell Jonah to do he says arise and go to Nineveh well where's Nineveh Nineveh is the capital of a neighboring Empire called Assyria and Assyria is the greatest threat to Israel at this time It is the greatest military threat. It's the only time that a prophet in the Old Testament is told to leave his borders and go and speak against a Gentile nation, a non-Israelite nation. It's very unique. And Jonah gets up and he goes the opposite direction. Now to give you some context for how far we're talking about traveling here, Nineveh is about 500 miles east of Israel. Tarshish, which we believe is in Italy, is about 2,000 miles west of where he's at. So imagine that John, John's a good brother. John comes up to me this morning. He says, hey, Jared, listen, I'm so glad you're here. Anything you need, I'll get it for you. And I said, oh, John, oh, that's so sweet. That's so kind of you. Hey, man, you know what? I'm really in the mood for a pierogi. I said, oh, what? Where do I get a pierogi at? I said, listen, man, the best pierogies, Cleveland. (laughs) It's about 500 miles east of here. He said, listen, for you, Jared, I'll do it. And then he goes to the airport, and he hops on a plane, and he goes to Seattle to get me a bagel, and it's 2,000 miles west. It's four times the opposite direction. Think about that. The Lord says, hey, go here. He says, okay, and he goes the other direction. He goes the other direction four times the distance. Now, why? Why doesn't Jonah do what the Lord asks? A lot of people think it's because he's afraid of all the fish slappers in Assyria. See, I say that just to see who likes to watch VeggieTale movies. If you don't watch Veggie tale, it's not even remotely humorous. But if you do, then you know. You know. Now listen, Assyria, if we look at the archaeology from them, we know that they are bad people. That they would line their roads going into their cities with bodies that were impaled. They would stack skulls of their victims in piles outside their cities. These were bad people. So was Jonah afraid of the Assyrians? Well, I don't think so. You see, if you're afraid of a neighboring enemy then you don't leave your borders and go somewhere else. You stay within your borders. You stay with your people. No, he flees the opposite direction. You see, it says he's trying to get away from the presence of the Lord. Now, that begs the question, how bad is Jonah's theology? Does Jonah have really bad theology? Does he think he can get away from a God who is everywhere? I don't think so either. I think we'll see later on that Jonah's trying to quit his job as a prophet. He's trying to quit his job. So now he goes down to Joppa. It's the only coastal port in Israel. And he sets sail. Now let's pick up and see what happens. Verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest or a storm on the sea. So the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners, this is the sailors, not the baseball team were afraid and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten for him. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. Now, I want you to notice something that the author is doing here. Jonah's moving in disobedience, and so the author is using the word down over and over and over again. Notice, Jonah goes down from Gath Hepher down to Joppa. He goes down to the ship. He then goes down into the innermost part of the ship and then he lays down to go to sleep. Every step he's trying to move further and further away from the Lord. Jonah is moving in disobedience. Now as he's sleeping, Look what happens, verse 6. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. If Jonah isn't willing to listen to the Lord, what do you think the chances he's going to listen to the captain? Right? It's like nil. It's not a chance. Verse 7 And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and that lot fell on Jonah. So now, what is this act of casting lots? This was an action practiced throughout the ancient Near East, the whole world of the Old Testament, not just in Israel, but all the neighboring countries. And we think it was kind of like casting dice. You would predetermine which way the dice would land to point to whose fault it was. Or like drawing straws sometimes. Whoever draws the shortest stick, that's who it's pointing to. So we don't know in this particular instance what method of casting lots they did. But what we do know is that when they casted the lots, they fell to Jonah. Meaning that it pointed that Jonah was the one responsible for this terrible storm that they're experiencing. Now, this is totally bonus. This is totally extra. Does anybody know when was the last time lots were cast in the Bible? That's right. That's right. Acts chapter 1, when they were picking the disciple who would replace Judas. The working theory is that then in Acts 2, when the Holy Spirit comes upon believers, there's no need for lots again after that. Do you want one more free one? okay, John Wesley, okay, preacher, he practiced casting lots. Did you know that? And this is interesting. This might get me in trouble with Josiah, but I don't care. He's not here. <laughs> when, when John was trying to determine if he was going to emphasize uh, an Arminian theology with free will or a Calvinistic theology with the providence of God, he decided it, By casting lots. And the lots fell to Arminian theology. So think about that. He used casting lots to determine his theology. If you don't get it, it'll come later. It's okay. (laughs) It's okay. It's just interesting. Anyways, so Lot fell to Jonah. Verse 8 Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country and what people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. You see, there it is. That's Jonah's theology. Jonah's theology is solid. But do you notice when he asks him, What's your occupation? he doesn't answer that question because he's running away from his job as a prophet. He ain't got a job. He's looking for work. He's out of work. What's your occupation? I don't have one. I'm trying to quit my job. theology is good. I fear God. When who made heaven and earth. Now, once he says this, verse 10, the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, pick me up, hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Now some scholars, some preachers have said that this moment right here is the moment where Jonah is most like Jesus Because he's willing to sacrifice himself on behalf of all of the sailors. I don't think that's true. I don't think that's true. Here's why. If we were to continue preaching right through lunch, and nobody would like that. But if we got into Jonah 2, when Jonah is in the belly of the big fish, the entire chapter is his lament psalm. It's his moment of repentance. It's his moment where he stands before the Lord and he apologizes and he asks for forgiveness. If this was the moment where Jonah was most like Jesus and was willing to sacrifice himself for everyone else, we wouldn't need chapter two. We wouldn't need chapter two. But when Jonah says, throw me into the sea, he's not expecting Another ship to come along. He's not expecting to swim the shore. And he's definitely not expecting for a fish to swallow him. He's expecting to die. He's expecting to die. And here, this is not the moment where Jonah is most like Jesus. This is the moment where Jonah has reached the height of his stubbornness. Where he has become unreasonably obstinate before God. He would rather die then do what God tells them to do. You see, God's not interested in him perishing. God is interested in doing his will in and through Jonah. Now, Jonah pitches this idea. The sailors know it's a bad idea. Verse 13, nevertheless, and made vows. Now this is interesting because the text doesn't tell us directly who these sailors are but what we know from history is that the Israelites not in the sailing the Israelites were fearful of the sea but there was a group of what would be idol worshipers pagans known as Phoenicians that were all along the Mediterranean coast we find them from Uh, the northern tip of the Mediterranean Sea, all the way down to Egypt, their presence. And so most likely, this group of sailors are people who don't believe in Yahweh, the Lord of heaven and earth. But in this moment, they're confronted by Yahweh, and they worship him. They make vows to him. And then verse 17 And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. That's as far as we're going to go in the text today. I want to see something as we summarize this chapter. Notice this the beginning of the chapter, the Lord sends a storm. He sends wind. And what happens? There's a storm. When happens, right? The sailors, they cast lots, an inanimate object. What do the lots do? They point to Jonah. A fish, a creature in the sea. The Lord appoints it to swallow Jonah. What does it do? It swallows Jonah. Pagan sailors make vows to the Lord when confronted by him. Jonah... Jonah, the prophet of the Lord, the guy whose job it is to do what God says, the one who's heard from God directly, never does it. Think about this. Do you see that interesting contrast? Nature, inanimate objects, a creature, pagans, all fall in line with the God. And the one person you'd expect as you're reading through this narrative to get in line with God and do what God says, never does he is stubborn he is unreasonably obstinate and it would be easy for you and i to look at jonah and go jonah you fool but if we're honest if we're really honest that if you've trusted in what jesus has done for you if you've trusted that jesus died on the cross to pay for your sins And that he rose from the grave to give you new life. And you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. If you and I are honest, if if we've entered into this relationship with God, and God's called us to do something, and we haven't done it, we're stubborn too. We're unreasonably obstinate. And so I want to ask you this question. If you're honest before the Lord right now, if you're willing to ask the Lord to search your heart and make known to you, is there an area where you've been unreasonably obstinate? As Brandon said, have you been willing or unwilling with what the Lord has for you? Now, the only solution for a stubborn heart is a surrendered heart. That's the only solution. And I want to give you a picture of that this morning. There's a lawyer by the name of Bob Goff. He's the antithesis of a lawyer. He's loving, kind, sweet. He's a hugger. And Bob, whenever he's working with his clients and they're going to be in a cross-examined situation, he explains to them that the lawyer is going to try to get them worked up. And so he said, do this. When you're sitting there, put your hands on your lap with the palms up. He said, when you get angry, you get defensive. Or you want to cross your arms. You want to clench your fists. But he said, do this. Put your hands on your lap, palms up. And you won't be able to get upset. And you won't be able to get angry. And it works every time. And I think that right there is a perfect picture of surrendered. That you and I must be willing to live a life Palms up before God. That in every day, every moment, every situation, we look to the Lord and we are palms up. We are our surrendered people. Now, I want you to know this. That we are living in a culture, in a world, where we're going to be going upstream. If we're living surrendered lives. We're going to live in a time, in a period, in which... A life that is willing to do what the Lord has is counterintuitive to everything else. It's counterintuitive to our nature. It's counterintuitive to the mindset. Here's why. Here's why. There is a poem written in the 1800s that perfectly summarizes the mindset of our culture. It's called Invictus by William Henley. I'll read the last two lines. It says this. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That is the ethos, the mindset of our world, of our culture, of everyone you interact with. That's the temptation of our own hearts, is to be the master of our own fate, the captain of our own soul. But here's the reality. A preacher by the name of Spurgeon captured this response very well said this, every person must serve somebody. We have no choice as to that fact. Those who have no master are slaves to themselves. Depend upon it. You will either serve Satan or Christ, either self or the Savior, and you will find sin, self, Satan, and the world to be hard masters. But if you wear the uniform of Christ, you will find him so meek and lowly of heart that you will find rest unto your souls. If you could see our captain, you would go down on your knees and beg him to let you enter the ranks of those who follow him. It is heaven to serve Jesus. So this morning, yeah, praise the Lord. This is the question that we must consider In our hearts before the Lord, are we stubborn or are we surrendered? Are we closed off or are we palms up? You see, Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh because he knew Nineveh was the greatest threat to Israel. And he was right. The Ninevites came and they conquered his home 30 years later because the Lord repented or the Lord allowed them to repent. He knew what the threat was, and the threat was real. And listen, if you go before the Lord, and you want to be surrendered before Him, it will cost you something. The Lord told us this, that it was going to cost us something. He told us to count the cost of discipleship. He said that if the world hated Him, then the world would hate us. And so I want you to know that when you leave here today, if you are resolute, if you are determined to live palms up, it's not free. It's not free. It may cost you everything, but I promise you this. It's 100% worth it. There is nothing else. There's nothing more important than the Lord's kingdom and being on mission for his kingdom. Would you pray with me? Lord, we're calling out to you today, Lord. We're calling out, Lord, that we would ask that by the power of your spirit that you would confront us, that you would convict us, that we would deal with the very thing, the very hang-up that's been preventing us to live on mission for you and for your kingdom. And we pray, Lord, that today that we would surrender it, that today, Lord, would be the day that we would give it up. And so I pray, Father, that as a body, as a people, that the Rock Church would be marked by lives of surrender before you that, Lord, you are the only hope in this world. And we pray, Lord, that through living lives of surrender, that we would be light in darkness. We ask this all in the powerful name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Thanks again for listening to our podcast and this week's message. Again, if you'd like to find out more about our church and intending a live service, you can find us online at www.rockchurchqc.com as well as on Facebook at Rock Church of the Quad Cities and on YouTube. Just search Rock Church QC and you'll be able to access our past sermons. And when you subscribe, you'll be notified when we go live for our weekly services. Until next time, have a great day and God bless.